This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. On this episode, we find out what happened after the seismic failure at the Battle of Manzikert. What we will see is that Manzikert might have been the epicenter of the Byzantine downfall, but it was hardly the only shift around the empire. In fact, there were many. Manzikert was central, but it was not alone. Everywhere the typical Byzantine looked were signs of imminent danger, if they would have only opened their eyes. This is episode 108, and it's entitled, Cracks in the Bulwark. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lars Brownworth, historian and podcaster, well, he wrote in his book, Lost to the West, the Forgotten Empire that Rescued Civilization, quote, Oblivious to the mounting dissension, Romanus marched out with his army, determined to evict the Turks from Christian lands once and for all. On August 26, 1071, the two armies met in the most fateful battle in Byzantine history began. End quote. Well, he's not wrong. The Battle of Manzikert sealed the fate of the Eastern Roman Empire. What's strikingly odd, and yet, in my estimation, undeniable, is that Manzikert occurred in 1071, while the true end, you know, the, the actual hard stop of the empire came not years later, or even decades later, but centuries later all the way until the year 1453, just a shade under 350 years after that fateful mistake of Emperor Romanus IV Diogenes. His empire crumbled like the mighty walls of Constantinople. So how in the world can I sit here and say that Manzikert was the beginning of the end for the Eastern Roman Empire? As mentioned on the last episode, the Eastern Roman Empire would never again hold as much land as it had the day before the battle, that is August 25th, 1071. Over the succeeding three centuries, the empire would slowly be eaten away. Some big bites, many small nibbles at the edges, but eaten away sure enough. The Seljuk Turks would continue from August 1071 to devour Anatolia until it caved in the walls of Constantinople. This simply cannot be overstated. Manzikert signaled a shift in the winds of history, almost like the, you know, like the flutter of a butterfly's wings whipping up a hurricane on the opposite side of the planet. Those around the butterfly wouldn't have, in the big picture, felt really a single thing. 
However, those on the other side of the world, here those living in the mid-15th century, would suffer the winds and devastation of the ensuing storm. Manzikert. It's like starting the movie Titanic. You know exactly what's going to happen. Now, you just have to sit back and watch it all unfold. Back on the battlefield of Manzikert, though, back into our narrative. It's late August, 1071. The next morning, August 27th. Just as the rays of morning light sprayed the landscape and woke the world up, across the field walked the victorious Turks. They were looting, which was about as common for armies after a battle as sleeping was for anyone else. Nothing, really, was off-limits. Weapons, shields, boots, clothing, coins, leather straps, buttons, food. If you didn't need it to wear or use, then you could sell it. The attitude was, if not me, then it'll surely be someone else who picks it up. Rarely do bodies be left to rot in the same conditions as they fell. As these Turks waded through this massive above-ground graveyard, anyone grasping to a last thread of life was scooped up and taken back to camp, where they would be tended to and healed. Well, this was no favor, necessarily. If they happened to survive the horrific healing process, they'd just be sold into a, the vast slave trade network that Muslims were quite well known for. One of these men, you know, barely hanging on after the battle that next morning, having fallen the day before after taking many an enemy with him, by the way, well, he lay among a pile of dead Turks. Bleeding slowly from several wounds, his breathing was sharp but light, but he was hanging on to this mortal coil. But just so. He was brought back to camp and almost immediately recognized by his clothing as being someone of significant importance within the Byzantine Empire. Eventually, he was led to Sultan Alp Arslan himself, who must have been beside himself when he realized who this Roman was. As John Carr writes in his book, The Komneni Dynasty, quote, Romanus Diogenes was not dead, end quote. And that's right. In a stunning twist of fate, the emperor was alive after the Battle of Manzikert, after being left by his own generals to die there, alone. Carr continues, quote, All night he lay among the dead bodies, littering the battlefield, end quote. Almost unable to understand what was happening right in front of him, Alparslan, says Carr, quote, treated Romanus with conspicuous honor as befitting an enemy ruler who had displayed incontestable personal valor. The two became firm friends, taking strolls together and discussing the recent battle, end quote. It's an odd thing to consider, but yes, Romanus IV and Alparslan two pretty serious enemies up to that point, had fallen into an unlikely friendship following that battle. And with that, Alp Arslan was sure that his expansion was secure. See, from the Sultan's standpoint, once Romanus IV was returned to Constantinople, he would resume his place on the Eastern Roman throne and would then spread word of his captor's generosity and respect. From this, he hoped for less of a confrontational relationship with Eastern Rome, 
and more of a friendly tone. Make no mistake, though, Alp Barzlan was playing a serious hand here, but he was sure it would pave the way for Seljuk expansion in the future, and if anything, it would settle tensions between Constantinople and his Seljuks so that he was free to resume his campaign against the Fatimids out in Cairo. Little did Alp Arslan know, and Romanus IV for that matter, that within a couple days of a new of that battle, a new ducus was on the throne of the Eastern Roman Empire. Romanus's stepson, Michael Ducas, was lifted up to become Emperor Michael VII, since the treacherous General Andronicus Ducas left the battlefield early and raced back to install his kin to the throne. So much for that plan, Alparslan. Deep in the secure confines of Alparslan's empire, Romanus learned of the treachery committed by the Ducas family. He surely swore revenge, given his next few steps. In true Romanus IV fashion, he might have rushed things, though. Almost a year went by before we hear of Romanus again, having not only healed from his wounds from Manzikert, but also at the head of a small army of loyal supporters. Romanus was marching the over 600 miles west toward Constantinople, poised to push his way back onto the throne. When Romanus's army arrived at the city of Ducaea, roughly halfway between Manzikert and Constantinople on the northern half of Anatolia, Romanus was faced with a stout Byzantine force, led by John Ducas, the same man who initiated the Varangian Guard and installed his, new, his nephew, Michael Ducas, to the throne several months earlier. No real victory or even loss occurred after this scuffle, but Romanus attempted another tactic. He would head south, back toward territory closer to his new ally, the Seljuk Turks. He made it as far as Adana in southern Anatolia, where he met none other than Andronicus Ducas, the very general who abandoned him on the battlefield at Manzikert, arguably sealing the fate of the emperor, let alone the emperor, or excuse me, let alone the empire itself. And it's worth reminding ourselves that Byzantine forces were largely consisting of mercenaries at the time. Some Bulgars, some Pechenegs, but more and more Normans from Italy, that is, after the 1040s, who pretty much kept to themselves within the larger Byzantine army, and they formed rather large contingents too, who were not only fierce cavalrymen, but also highly disciplined and experienced in warfare. Within Andronicus Ducas's army was a large contingent of over 400 knights, Norman knights, led by the rather infamous Roussel de Baliol. This very group of Normans, up to 1071 to 1072, had seen quite a bit of action back in Sicily, and Roussel de Baliol himself was one of Roger de Hauteville's top generals, and we'll talk about Roger de Hauteville's rise soon enough. Needless to say, their reputation had found itself in Romanus's camp, which no doubt influenced Romanus's next decision. Now, this reputation might have already been known. I have seen one record of Roussel de Baliol and his however many hundred Norman knights. They were actually a part of the Battle of Manzikert. Now, I haven't been able to cross-reference that uh, to my liking, but 
there's the possibility that they could have already been well known to Romanos and those loyal to him at this time. For Romanos, he could fight once again and take revenge upon this man who had irrevocably changed his life forever. Now, I'm back, of course, speaking of Andronicus Ducas. Or Romanus could see the odds he was up against. Romanus at last did something sensible, if you can believe it. He agreed to head once and for all to a monastery, promising to stay out of public life forever, right there in Adana. I wish I could say that was the last we would hear of him, but history just isn't that simple. See, the Dukai weren't just upset about how he and Eudokia, remember his wife, Michael's mother, usurped the throne, forsaking the well-liked Michael Dukas in lieu of their own ends. No, the, the Dukai began showing another side to their family. They were vengeful, ruthlessly vengeful. John Dukas had caught up to them after Romanos had vowed to leave the whole thing behind, the whole empire itself, and head to a life devoted to God. And it was John Dukas who commanded a soldier to gouge out Romanus IV's eyes, as Carr states, quote, in the crudest way, end quote. Now, Carr here quotes chronicler John Skylitzes, who says, quote, Carried forth on a cheap beast of burden, like a decaying corpse, his head, that is, Romanus IV's, his head alive with worms, he lived on in pain with a foul stench all about him, until he gave up the ghost. But in all misfortunes he uttered no curse or blasphemy, continuing always to give thanks to God and bearing courageously whatever befell him. End quote. Now personally, I'm, I'm kind of torn on Romanus IV Diogenes' legacy. I won't rehash the importance of Manzikert, I think I've done enough of that, and even how his rashness pushed the empire into irresponsible reaction to Seljuk advancement. But at the end of the day, as far as historical leaders go, individually, I'm going to go out on a limb here, he seemed, by the accounts of the time, like an honorable enough guy. People are difficult, you know, as people difficult as it is to pin down, but but looking at historical figures as simple two-dimensional characters isn't exactly healthy either. It's not either or. Romanus IV Diogenes, he is what he was, I, I, I guess. He was a little bit of mixture of, of, of honor and, and pride. Uh, it just happened to get him <laughs> two eyes gouged out at the end of the day, I suppose. He certainly wasn't the first uh, ever leader to suffer such an indignity at the end of his life or reign. And he, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you stand on it, he won't be the last either. So, Emperor Michael VII Ducas was now ruler of the Eastern Roman Empire, uncontested, more or less, in 1072. Just like his well-respected father. And much like dear old dad, Carr writes, quote, In a university or cloister... Michael might have accomplished much as a scholar, but the times called for a soldier, and a tough one at that, end quote. It was almost immediately clear that the empire was once again back to its old habits of 
you know, ballooning the bureaucracy of government while squeezing the populace dry through taxation and levies, and even fear, thus creating an empire where, as the government required more and more money to maintain, there were fewer and fewer people able to provide the necessary funds. Seems to be a trend in the world today, if you ask me. Big governments have big appetites. It's undeniable. But what do big governments do when there isn't enough to metaphorically feed them? Well, I can tell you what they don't willingly do. They certainly don't cut themselves down to size. In Lost to the West, historian Lars Brownworth writes, quote, It was the behavior of the aristocrats after Manzikert that truly wrecked Byzantium, end quote. This was the Eastern Roman Empire during the reign of Michael VII Ducas. None of it, really, was his fault initially. And the fact that he, was just, that he just wasn't the man who knew how to tackle the issues of stabilizing the economy while also tending to the military matters and, well, also easing the government appetite, well, as, as President Harry S. Truman once said, the buck stops here. In Michael VII's case, the buck had to stop somewhere. And it happened to be at his feet, whether it was deserved or not. During his reign, inflation increased dangerously fast and dangerously high. I mean, it was already on an upward trend, but it seemed to just completely go off rails after he took over. If I have my dates right, and I admit that I could be mistaken on this, after more than 700 years as a separate empire... It was during Michael VII's reign, or at least in the few decades previous to it, that the Eastern Roman Empire purposely, purposely devalued its currency in an effort to default on its inflationary concerns. Almost like, you know, hitting the reset button. Large-scale reset buttons such as this, they would be painful cures, but cures nonetheless. Brownworth writes, quote, the value of the currency collapsed, sending inflation spiraling, and Byzantium's prestige plummeted as international merchants abandoned their worthless coins. End quote. This devaluation had horrific consequences on the populace. Brownworth says, quote, Small farmers were virtually driven to extinction, frequently ending up as serfs on their own lands. And since military veterans could no longer afford to farm, the entire system of the peasant soldier collapsed. End quote. Now, this, of course, was a quote I've used before, but it, it was used before as well as even now, I suppose, to reiterate the idea that the, well, that peasant soldier was no longer there. Therefore, Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, was no longer protected by those who lived and worked and, you know, had a, had a stake in the success of the empire. This, this was what led to the mercenary armies that we've been talking about. In addition to economic collapse under Michael VII, the military was devastated, and I mean devastated, after decades of mistreatment and lack of funding, not to mention the massive disruption to its ranks after Manzikert. The Seljuks would continue to needle away at the fringes of the empire, like those velociraptors in Jurassic Park, if you remember, you know, always looking for weaknesses in the fencing. 
In addition, the Byzantine army was already heavily reliant on Bulgar, Pecheneg, Turkish, and Rus mercenaries, and the lack of funding and massive inflation further suffocated the ability to maintain a reliable fighting force. Once again, the Byzantine defenses were as weak as they'd ever seen by the end of the 1070s. Was it all Michael VII's fault? I mean, again, the buck had to stop somewhere, but he was simply ill-equipped, inexperienced, and had been given the rawest of deals to work with. The Eastern Roman Empire was bleeding out, and they couldn't even rely on an old, albeit strained, friendship with their co-religionists in the West, Rome. Not after Pope Leo IX excommunicated Patriarch Michael Serularius back in 1054. Animosity between Rome and Constantinople was still pretty high in the 1070s. Michael VII was just... He just wasn't the right man for the job, unfortunately. He inherited a failing empire with a collapsing economy and no way to protect its borders from hordes of militant migrants who shared a completely different worldview than their Christian one. The Eastern Roman Empire was dying. Don't take it from me. Here are Brownworth's own words. Quote, The empire was dying. And instead of helping... Foolish men insisted on fighting over its corpse, end quote. Now, Brownworth would point out that it took only 53 years for these quote-unquote foolish men, not to mention a few prominent foolish women, too, to, quote, nearly wreck the empire with their irresponsibility and greed, squandering a bursting treasury and sitting idly by while the empire lost more than half its territory, end quote half its territory. It's it's almost too much, without a full collapse of the empire, it's almost too much to even imagine in such a short amount of time. For an empire that officially existed for 1,000 years, and arguably was an extension going back another, well, at least 500 years, this is an incredible turn of events. And to circle back for a moment to that fateful day in August of 1071, Manzikert may not have been the one single event that set the ultimate collapse in motion, but it definitely laid bare, like, like for all to see, the fall that the empire had already suffered. Something was certainly rotten in the state of Denmark. And, like the end of Empire Strikes Back, my favorite one, by the way, I wish I had some good news for you to end the episode, but Constantinople's problems, if you can believe it, were actually kind of just starting. See, back in Italy, a Norman named Robert Giscard was attacking the Eastern Roman Empire as well. Between 1068 and 1071, the exact reign of Romanus IV Diogenes, the now humiliated emperor, well, Giscard led an army of Normans to the port city of Bari, and Giscard and his Norman knights laid a massive, long, like years-long siege to Bari. And in 1071, the Normans walked into Bari. What's significant about this? Well, Bari was the last remaining outpost of Byzantine territory on the Italian boot. Not only was the loss at Manzikert a devastating blow to the Eastern Roman Empire's supremacy, but Robert Giscard's capture of Bari 
and its subsequent expulsion of Byzantine forces from the boot was the last time a Byzantine force would occupy anywhere west of the eastern Adriatic coast. Now, in the last episode, when I said that the loss of Manzikert resulted in the greatest extent of Byzantine territory for the rest of its existence, it wasn't just true for the Middle Eastern side of things. It was true everywhere. The Seljuk Turks in the east, the Normans in the west. 1071, for the Roman Empire, 1071 was, was a monumentally bad year. Let's just put it that way. And as I said, its troubles were just getting started. Alp Arslan would continue to pester them out east, but a new threat from Norman Italy would emerge, beyond Bari, that is, that would threaten the immediate 11th century collapse of the empire itself. Enter, once again, Robert Guiscard and his son, Bohemond of Taranto. It's a new name that you better get used to for a while. And I can't wait to tell you about these guys heading into the 1080s. Until next time. Mm-hmm.